Hello and welcome again to the Neshama Project podcast where we explore spiritual tools for human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. This week we are going to be continuing our exploration of the idea of devekut, cleaving, clinging, attaching to the divine, which is our topic for the month of Tevet. Last week, we explored several texts that were presented in a text sheet by Professor Daniel Matt, the great scholar of Kabbalah, who I interviewed last month. And this week, we're going to be continuing our exploration of those same texts. The link to these texts, to this text sheet, can be found in the description of this podcast. This week, I am so pleased to welcome another special guest, Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan, Director of Interreligious Studies and Professor of Jewish Studies at the Vancouver School of Theology. She's also Professor Emerita of Or Shalom Synagogue and Professor Emerita of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's also the author of Mouth of the Donkey, Reimagining Biblical Animals, and Shekhinah Bring Me Home, Kabbalah and the Omer in Real Life. Welcome, Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan to the Neshama Project podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. First, I'd like to ask you, what got you interested in Jewish mysticism uh, in general and the Zohar in particular? I was first led to Jewish mysticism by some spiritual experiences that I had, which included talking to God and getting answers that felt like being flooded by an infinite presence. That's one of the experiences. Another one was the sense that someone was knocking on a door in my mind, and if I opened it, Um, unknown changes would begin to happen. And it was after those spiritual experiences that I came into contact with Aleph Alliance for Jewish Renewal and beginning to study with Aleph and beginning to learn a little bit about Kabbalah gave me a Jewish vocabulary that I was comfortable with for living more into these experiences. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, and I'm assuming you studied with Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi as well. Um, he was one of your teachers, yes? I studied with Reb Zalman, but my main Zohar teacher was Rabbi Miles Krasin. My first experiences of formal study of Kabbalah were really in Hasidic literature, still with Rabbi Miles. We studied the Sefer of the Baal Shem Tov, or the Sefer attributed to the Baal Shem Tov, called Tzava'at Harivash, Testament of the Baal Shem Tov, which was really a fabulous discussion of Dvekut in its many manifestations and its many kinds of practice. From being aware of God while you are out and about in the street chatting with people, to dealing with those experiences when, as the Baal Shem Tov puts it, the heavens split open and you're transported to the highest levels of consciousness. 
and really practices for every level in between. And so when Rabbi Miles introduced me to the Zohar, this was more of beginning to learn about the intellectual tradition that produced Hasidic thought and practice. Thank you for that background. Would you like to now just dive right into the texts on the text sheet? I'd be very happy to do that. Thank you. So you and Dr. Matt have really put together a beautiful study sheet, and we'll start right at the beginning of it. There's a verse from Bereshit Genesis 2, verse 24. The verse says, and I'll read it in English, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the Hebrew specifically uses the word that is the root for dveikut. Um, a man leaves his father and his mother, vidavak beishto v'hayu levasar echad. A man clings, or as I like to translate it, attaches to his wife, and they become one flesh, one being. The context in which this verse appears is right after God has put the Adam, the Adam who at this point is neither male nor female, God has put the Adam to sleep, separated a rib or a side, however you want to translate the word Selah, and out of that fashioned another humanoid being. One is now a man, one is now a woman, Ish and Isha. Adam wakes, turns to face this new partner and says, wow, wow, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, or if you want to translate etzem, not as bone, but as essence, essence of my essence. This is amazing. Mm. And he gives her a name for the first time. He gives her a name later after some of their adventure garden. That's a different name. But this is what he calls her. He gives her a name that is identical to his own self-understanding. And then the narrator adds a reflection. This is why a man leaves his parents and becomes a new unit with his wife. So in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 1, God creates a human, male and female. And in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 2, God creates one human who is later split apart, and these two parts are a male and female, or a masculine and a feminine. So how do you harmonize the two accounts? One of one famous way of looking at it, and you see this in the Midrash, is that the first human being was a not what we would call today a non-binary human being, a single integrated human being. And at some point, 
that human being is split into two and one side has qualities we would consider socially masculine and one has qualities we would consider socially feminine and the two face one another and they have to learn to be ezer kinegdo. They have to learn how to help each other, to integrate, to work together in the world. And if you are a depth psychologist, you will know that one of the most important psychological tasks of an adult human being is to begin to integrate the parts of themselves um, into a more functional and healthy human being. So it could be that part of the human story. Another possibility is that the original human being is a spiritual being, completely spiritual human being. And the second creation of the human being from the earth is of an embodied human being. And I point this out because last month's study sheet in talking about the divine light of the universe talked about the first Adam, the first human being, as a being of light, right? Whose light stretched from one end of the earth to the other. And that each of us, while we are embodied beings, we also have within us this endless light. I'll say one more word about this text. Because the word dvekut here appears in the context of the Adam saying, essence of my essence. And since we're of the same essence, now the narrator adds, we must attach to one another. That holds the seeds for the way the idea of dvekut develops in the tradition of Kabbalah. Because metaphysically speaking, in the Kabbalistic model of the universe, as we saw last month, we are all emanations of the divine light. So essentially, we are of the same stuff as the divine light. And even though it is a journey of practice and integration, it is natural for us to attach to our source that which shares our essence. Wonderful. Thank you. Would you like to take us into our next text, which is Deuteronomy 11.22? Yeah, this verse from Devarim also comes back around, or a verse very much like this verse comes back around as we see in the later text a little dispute between Chazal, the rabbis of the Talmud, and the early Kabbalists. Uh, but this tells us, this particular verse tells us that Moshe is instructing the Israelites before he dies about the different ways that they should relate to God, the different ways that they should show respect to God, the different ways they should uh, learn how to keep their experiences at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness uh, and at the Exodus, how they should keep that very close to them throughout history. And here Moshe says, 
Uh, For if you indeed keep all this command that I charge you to perform, and here are the three ways, to love yud heh vav your God, to walk in all of God's ways, and to cleave or cling or attach to God. So Moshe himself is saying here, you might suggest that these are three distinct ways of relating to the divine. There is love of God, and the precise meaning of that is certainly debated in Midrash and Talmud, but there is an emotional passion there. There is walking in all of God's ways, which is traditionally interpreted as following commandments, doing the mitzvot. And then there's an additional thing, and to attach to God. And the meaning of this, precisely what we are supposed to do, is of course something that expands and changes in the history of mystical thought. And we'll see in one of the later texts on the sheet that at least some thinkers, some teachers, understand Vekut as an intellectual practice of training your attention and your habits of thought to have God always before you. Wonderful. Let's move on to the next text, which begins our exploration of the rabbinic interpretation of the idea of Devekut. This text is from Sanhedrin 64a. This is a nice one because this is a verse that's used in the Torah service, in conservative and orthodox synagogues regularly. There's a little Talmudic discussion of this verse that is familiar to people who attend Torah service in Orthodox and conservative synagogues, and perhaps other denominations as well. You who are attached to, you who cleave to Adonai, your God, you are alive this day. And this is part of a Talmudic discussion that is looking at different words that the Tanakh uses for attachment to God versus attachment to our God versus attachment to the God Baal Peor in the book of Numbers. And the word, the discussion comes to the conclusion that the word that is used for the way the people who strayed from the majority of Israelites, the way the people who attached to a foreign god is described, the word indicates kind of a loose attachment. But the word that is used for the way the people are attached to the God of Israel is the word um, davak, which means very closely attached. Mm -hmm. And 
So they ask themselves, what kind of attachment are we talking about between Israel and its God, between the Jews and yud heh vav This is a very close and tight attachment. And if you think about it Kabbalistically, you might say, when you are attaching to the true God, that is, when you are on a healthy and productive spiritual quest, you will be experiencing a kind of deepening and life-giving attachment in your journey. Something good will be growing within you. Hmm. But if you are on a false path, a wrong path, not in the literal Torah sense of another nation's God, but uh, perhaps a path where you are not well-directed, which is scattered, which is wrong for you or confusing, then you will not have the same kind of ever-deepening attachment. You will have something that is loose and doesn't grow within you in the same way. And they use, the Talmud uses the term devukim mamash, really, really connected. That's the relationship between Israel and our God. Which gets to something really important about devekut. Devekut is a practice that can be done at every level of consciousness. So it's not like you have an experience of cosmic consciousness and then you've achieved dvekut because you're immersed in the unity of everything. Uh, you can practice dvekut when you're on public transit and you look around at all the faces and you remind yourself all of these people are loved by God. So the next text is from Sifrei, Deuteronomy 49, another rabbinic text. This is a very interesting text in which the rabbis are trying to bring together different statements in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, right? Because in several places, Devarim says, you should attach to God. Ulidavka vo. On the other hand, the book of Dvarim also describes God as Esh Ochla, a consuming fire. And what could be meant by a consuming fire is, of course, something that you have to think about in order to understand where they're going in the text. From the original context of Moshe saying God is a consuming fire, it seems that Moshe is trying to convey the, the depth and the passion of God's jealousy, how much God wants people to be attracted to God. Yeah. But Rashi says it's a threat of punishment, <laughs> right? That if you stray, uh, punishment is going to rain down on you like fire, 
Right. So they've got this contradiction between the instruction to attach to God and the very dangerous nature of getting close to God, right? Whether your body will be damaged, you'll lose your individuality, uh, you'll be punished because you've strayed too far from the boundaries, or even psycho-spiritually, you will be playing with fire and be... Um, overcome with some kind of inner terror, whatever it means. They resolve it by finding a way to attach to God, but with some distance. Mm -hmm. The text assumes that there is a subset of wise people, learned people, spiritually adept people who can maybe get this close to God, but most of us cannot. And so the best thing that we should do is we should attach ourselves um, as students or devotees of those who are able to do this work. And if we do this, this will be the right level for us. It will be as if we had that direct vision of God it's in a safe way. What's uh, what's resonating for me is back to last month's uh, sheet about the filter, right? That that you need the filter in order to see the light, and that it almost is as if here it's saying that uh, a teacher or a wise person for you would be a, a filtered way, a, a step down voltage of connecting to God. That wouldn't be, you know, connecting yourself right into the power plant, so to speak. Yeah, I uh, like that a lot. So the next text is Ketubot 111b. Yeah, here they shift a little bit and they talk about attaching to the Shekhinah, the divine presence. And they are wondering, is it possible for a person to directly attach to the divine presence? Well, maybe not, but what you can do is be in the company of or attach yourself to or help support those who themselves, in a sense, embody the divine presence. Mm -hmm. So if you are a man, you can marry the daughter of a scholar, and thus you are bringing Shekhinah into your home in a very attached kind of way. Or you can support those who embody the Shekhinah or are attached to the Shekhinah and if you do that, then we, the rabbinic authorities, say this is as good as clinging to the Shekhinah. It's a good uh, the, fundraising text for, for yeshiva. For yeshiva. <laughs> exactly. I was about to say one of the problems with this particular text is it appears just a little bit self-interested. Mm. And it's written by the rabbis, right? So That's right. But it is there because there's going to be a later text disagreeing with it. 
So let's move on to the next text, which is from Sota 14a from the Talmud. Uh, The next text is really so very beautiful. And the next text reminds me of uh, Moshe waiting in the cleft of the rock and seeing God's achorai, God's after effects. This text is about clinging to God by bringing about in your own practice things that kind of are the after effects of the presence of God, things that embody those 13 midot, the 13 attributes of compassion. Right? This text is about giving God the credit for bringing into the world the acts of clothing the naked, visiting the sick, comforting the mourners, burying the dead. And any time that you do those acts of compassion, you are also bringing those divine qualities, those after effects into the world. And so this text says, what is meant by the verse? After yud Hey vav Hey your God, shall you walk? And goes through the same question about how close can you get to the Shekhinah? If the Shekhinah is a consuming fire, can you walk right behind the Shekhinah? And the answer is walk together with, follow the attributes that are revealed to Moshe on Mount Sinai. Follow those attributes, bring into the world those attributes of compassion. You too should clothe the naked, visit the sick, comfort the mourners, bury the dead. Mm. And on the one hand, you might say, this is a real taming of the idea of being close to the Shekhinah because it's saying, look, don't chase after the psychological experience or the cosmic consciousness or anything really fiery. Just do the practical work in the world. Uh, But there's another way of interpreting this as bringing these attributes of compassion into the world can itself become a passion that is like a consuming fire. Mm -hmm. But because the work is other-directed, you are not being consumed. You're bringing the benefits out into the world. Yeah, and I I think it's an interesting... um challenge to people who want to chase after the mystical experience of loss of self that that a lot of the mystical texts talk about to just say actually doing good and and bringing goodness into the world is what it's all about and any experience of unification with god or any of these sort of cosmic consciousness experiences are really ultimately um useful only in so far as they bring you to be bringing truth beauty and goodness and an end to suffering to the world absolutely 
And I think that's consistent with this very famous Talmudic discussion, which is greater, study or action? And the conclusion is study is greater because it leads to action. Right. And this is sort of in the spirit of that. Even if you, oh, sorry, this is not exactly what the text says, but we can integrate it into our own practice in this way. Even if you have the most satisfying and illuminating experiences of cosmic consciousness, and even if they last for hours or days or months, when you're in that state, you can still be sharing the love that you receive by doing these acts of kindness that make other people's lives more bearable. Great. So let's move on to the next text. Now we're starting to read some texts in the tradition of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalah. Would you like to introduce us to this text? So yes, the next text from... Yosef Chikatilya, Sha'are Ora, Gates of Light. Um, Chikatilya simply and straightforwardly takes issue with Chazal, the rabbinic tradition that says, um, can a person cleave to the divine? Well, maybe in these exceptionally mediated ways. And Chikatilya says, no. Is it possible for a human being to cleave to the Shekhinah? Yes, it is possible. And it's clear, Chikatilya says, it's clear from the text of the Torah that it's possible for a human being to cleave to the Shekhinah to practice Dveikut. How do we know? Go back to a verse from Deuteronomy, Devarim, that says, yud vav your God you shall revere, God you shall serve, and to God you shall attach. Mm. Now, just to expand on the text, when we try to understand what does it mean to revere or worship or serve God, we interpret that in a straightforward way, right? Be respectful of God. Speak of God with great honorifics. Pray to God. Praise God. And we don't say to people, oh, sorry, you're not spiritually evolved enough to do this. We, we have a common understanding of what it means for ordinary people to revere God or to worship God. And it says, God, we shall serve. We also have very ordinary understandings of what it means to serve God. Everyone can do that. We serve God by doing rituals. We serve God by doing good deeds. We serve God by practicing mitzvot and praying we don't say to people, you aren't spiritually evolved enough to do that. So is the third instruction in the sequence going to be radically different? All of a sudden, a gate comes down and most people can't do it? The sensible answer is no. Obviously, this is going to be a third thing that everyone can do. So let's jump ahead to the next text. 
This is from Ezra of Girona, commentary to the Song of Songs. The text from Ezra of Girona is a big leap forward, in a sense, because it contains in it references to all kinds of Kabbalistic practices that perhaps were second nature to Ezra, but might be new to people reading the source sheet, and it goes beyond everything that we've talked about so far, which has earlier been more, what's the theory of Dvekut? And now he's getting into what are some of the practices. Mm. And he wants to explain what is the essence of what the mystics and the contemplatives do. And he says, it is to have one's thought concur with one's faith. So what does that mean? I'm not a scholar of Ezra of Gerona, but I think it means that we need to not simply wait for some great heart transformation or experience of grace to come to us, but we need to actively use our attention and our mind to work toward this kind of connection. And one of the ways of doing this, I'll get to the technical part in a minute, one of the ways of doing this, if we have any Jewish practice at all, for example, even if our only Jewish practice is to say hamotzi, that's a prayer that includes one of God's names, Adonai, right? The most socially acceptable of the holy names, let's put it that way. Uh, one that you can say in synagogue and at the dinner table without fear of being consumed by the consuming fire. Every time you say Adonai, you should be thinking of the expansiveness of God. You should be thinking of the name yud Hey vav Hey and its infinite being. And if you are a scholar of Kabbalah who has studied the spiritual meanings of each of the distinct Hebrew letters that are in God's name, you should, every time you say Adonai, keep in mind all of those spiritual meanings. If you've chanted the different arrangements of the holy letters and you have different psychological and embodied experiences from chanting those letters, then every time you say Adonai, you should pause and recall all of those experiences. 
If you are aware of the theory of the 10 spherot, the 10 spiritual attributes that are part of God's essence and also part of our own spiritual makeup, then every time you simply say the word Adonai, you should pause and reflect on each of those 10 attributes. Whichever of those tools that you have, every time you say the word Adonai, you should pause and focus your attention on those divine attributes. Mm. And through that, I know it sounds like a complicated practice, but I'm going to say through that simple practice of meditating on the essence of God with whatever tools you have, even if all you your whole Jewish practice is saying hamotzi before you eat, you will be opening yourself and beginning to practice multiple levels of dvekut, of attaching yourself to this presence. I, I want to say more, Ben, but my cat now wants to come in. Hang on. You would think there's other people home and they'd be listening to for the cat, but they're not. <laughs> and we're live. This text ends with um, a reminder, a way of reminding yourself in shorthand, in just a few words, to engage in this practice. And it's a verse from Proverbs where wisdom is always described as feminine. A verse from Proverbs instructing us to say to wisdom, you are my sister. Emor um, achoti at. At the simplest level, you are telling your mind, your intellect, the wise part of you, to always be a partner in this practice of dvekut. Mm -hmm. reminding your mind to focus and to help you stay on this path or pursue this path. But there's other fabulous dimensions to this idea of achoti at that come forward to me as a reader of this text. For example, there are several significant places in the Torah, where calling something an ach or an achot uh, describes the two items as an inseparable, inseparable pair. So, for example, the kruvim that are part of the fancy covering for the Ark of the Covenant where um, traditionally we depict those as, you know, quite fanciful human-animal hybrids. They are described as um, an ach to one another, siblings to one another, because they are a pair, and the two of them... Uh, work together as 
I don't know how you want to see it, fronts the first gate to the divine presence. In the book of Ezekiel, the wings of the angels are described as being siblings. Each one is an achot to the other. And they are an inseparable pair of wings, and they are part of right the vision of those who serve at the divine throne. Now, this takes you directly to the next text, which is um, also from Azriel uh, of Girona. Um, and this is basically, uh, it seems very similar to what you're saying, right? It says, say to wisdom, you are my sister, Proverbs 7, 4. This implies that one should join thought to wisdom so that she and he are a single thing. And I guess she and he are thought and thought, thought and wisdom or the person and, and wisdom. That's a good question. Um, I would think that you're reading it correctly when you say the person and wisdom are a simple thing just because marshava is a feminine noun as well as chokhmah. I really like what you said, Ben, about joining the marshava thought to chokhmah, wisdom, that thought perhaps is everyday consciousness as well as the ability to pay attention and uh, think about things at a higher level, where wisdom is something like that divine flow. Mm which would make this text different from the other, the previous text. Yes. So it adds something new. And the idea is here that you should constantly be using your thought to open to that wisdom, right? And in the times that you are actively practicing, it will be as though they are a single thing. And the times that you are not actively practicing, um, your thought will be infused just a little bit more with wisdom all the time. All right, let's move on to the final text on this text sheet. This is from Isaac of Akko, the 13th century mystic. Uh, the final text on this sheet is very beautiful and also very personally meaningful to me. It's an expansion on a verse in Psalms that says, taste and see that Yudhei Vavhei is good. And so an imagery, the imagery used riffs off this idea of tasting and being nourished. I'm going to read it and then give my own um, riff on it. The soul will cleave to the divine mind and the divine mind will cleave to the soul. For more than the calf wants to suck, the cow wants to suckle. 
she and the mind become one thing, like pouring a jug of water into a gushing spring, for all becomes one. When I read this text, I think about my experience many years ago as a nursing mother who nursed two babies in their infancy. And I think about the very real physical experience of, for example, if you're away from your infant for too many hours, your breasts become very uncomfortably full. And sometimes even if your baby isn't around, you'll have a letdown and milk will begin to flow because your body, your maternal body wants to nourish the infant. Mm. And when the infant does nurse, the more the infant nurses, assuming you're both healthy and everything is going well, the more the infant nurses, the more milk you produce, right? So the mother and the infant are kind of in this cycle of endless nourishment, wanting each other and needing each other. And I think of this metaphor here as God being like the nursing mother, God wants to um, nourish us spiritually. God wants divine energy, divine mind, divine awareness to flow into us. And that is available to us. All we have to do is turn toward it. And maybe we could think here of the mind the thinking mind at all its levels as being like the infant, right? With God being like the nursing mother. And all we have to do is turn our mind. I say all we have to do, but it, it's a lot. We've already seen from these texts, there's a lot you can do. But within the universe of this text, all you have to do, all the mind has to do is turn itself toward that flow and the flow will let down and the mind will become nourished and a greater participant in this practice of Devekut. And in this sense of this text, all becomes one, right? The desire, the seeking, the nourishment, the flow, the jug of water into the gushing spring, the gushing spring fills up the jug of water, it goes back in again. And so for me, this is an exceptionally um, clear and helpful metaphor. And I, I just think it's incredible in terms of its use of an image of God, not as a masculine image, as a feminine image, as a mother. And what I, I'm struck by as well is often when we think, say the feminine in Kabbalah, we say the receiver, right? right? Uh, the, you know, the left side, the Shekhinah is seen as the one that receives, but here it's the feminine as the giver. Right, the feminine as where the flow is coming from. 
And I think that that's amazingly gorgeous and beautiful and, and so needed for our images of, of God in this day and age and, and throughout history. I've also seen this metaphor used with teachers and students that more than the student wants to learn, the teacher wants to teach. And I love your metaphor about the teacher of Torah or the teacher of anything significant, really, because it underscores what a cycle of giving and receiving this is. Because one of the reasons why we love teaching is because as we're teaching, we're receiving from the student, we're rethinking the material, and we are learners at the same time in the process. Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us to guide us through these texts on Debekut for the month of Tevet. I'm so grateful. You're so welcome, Ben. It's been great to learn with you. That's it for this episode of the Neshama Project podcast. Thank you so much for joining us to explore the idea of Debekut. Until next time, take care. <laughs>